1: This is Bloomberg Wall Street Week. We turn our attention
2: to the markets this week. U.S. CPI endeavors reinforcing concerns about inflation. And the financial stories that shape our world. A really different reaction to markets. More indications of just how hot the U.S. economy really is.
3: Through the eyes of the most influential voices. Larry
2: Summers, the former Treasury Secretary. Catherine Keating, CEO of BNY Mellon. Sam Zell, chairman and founder of Equity Group Investment.
3: Bloomberg Wall Street Week with David Weston
0: from Bloomberg Radio.
2: Inflation, a slowing economy,
3: a climate on
2: the brink, and a new world order in the making. But the great and the good still find room for optimism as they gather in Switzerland. This is a special Davos edition of Wall Street Week. I'm David Weston. This week, we talk with the leaders of Global Wall Street about the economy, business.
4: There's clear evidence inflation has, in fact, peaked
2: and is coming down.
5: It's a funny thing when people say inflation has peaked. Inflation is just going to grow slower
2: and why the big issues like inequality and climate and geopolitics matter for both of those. We are trying to address the misconceptions. A uh, transition has to always be fair and just.
6: The world's got a number of major transitions that we're going through. Our focus is trying to move the noise out the way and actually roll up our sleeves and get on with the hard work.
2: And we speak to our special contributor, Larry Summers, on the potential for default on U.S. debt.
7: This is potential tragedy as far as it would be catastrophic and inconceivable for the United States uh, to default.
2: Every winter, pandemic permitting, Global Wall Street makes the trek to the Swiss Alps for the World Economic Forum, an organization started 42 years ago by Swiss engineer and economist Klaus Schwab to gather leaders of business, government, and academia to, as he put it, improve the state of the world. He spoke at the beginning of the conference about some of the thorniest issues today. Hotspots
3: of this geoeconomic remodeling are high inflation, increasing interest rates, and growing national debt. This is particularly hurting low- and middle-income groups. It is exacerbating societal fragmentation.
2: As Klaus Schwab says, we have some global economic issues to deal with, starting with at least the possibility of a recession, something that city CEO Jane Fraser told us she anticipates, though it may not be a bad one.
6: We do have, we do what we are seeing is different countries are very different places, so you actually cannot speak in generalities. We expect to see a rolling series of country recessions but short of anything crazy happening geopolitically and this time last year we wouldn't have predicted what happened in ukraine um, you've seen the tails come in so you've seen the over optimism from some about uh, soft landings and the economy's doing well but equally you've seen the down, the severe case downside also coming in I think the general view in the States, certainly one we hold at Citi, is we expect to see a mild recession, um, largely driven by the painfully persistent service inflation. Um, It's coming off, but it's still pretty high, and we do expect to see central banks continue tightening as a result. Um, But the vulnerabilities that amplified previous recessions around the world are not present. You know, banks are in very good shape, consumer balance sheets are in good shape, corporate balance sheets are in good shape. And I think that omens well for a mild recessions when they come um, rather than ones that we have to be worried about.
2: Jane Fraser sees a rolling recession around the world, but maybe, just maybe, it won't roll to Europe after all, after German Chancellor Olaf Scholz told our Editor-in-Chief John Micklethwaite that he does not anticipate a recession in Germany this year. And Gary Cohn, he's now Vice Chair of IBM, agrees with him. I thought that the
8: risk to Germany was really the energy situation going into the winter to the extent that we had a very cold winter and they had to start rationing uh, energy and they had to cut back industrial Germany to keep people warm. I felt that that was a really tough situation potentially. We're we're now deep enough into the winter and we sort of know where we are. We know what's in reserve and storage. I think Germany is going to get through the winter fairly easily with energy
2: and I think they're going to continue to power through this. So I'm in agreement with the chancellor. All of which led to a somewhat more positive outlook at the World Economic Forum than some had anticipated, as observed by Mary Callahan Erdos, responsible for investing $4.1 trillion at J.P. Morgan Asset and Wealth Management.
5: I would say the tone here, having come here for the past decade is, is less depressed than it than it often is, uh, which is a good sign uh, of hope of what's happening out there in the world. Um, having come off of the most difficult year for a balanced portfolio, 60, 40, whether you were in stocks or bonds or anything in between, it was pretty rough sledding. And so I think everyone's happy that that's behind us and looking forward. And the, and the job of what all of us at JP Morgan do is work on advising clients through the cycle. And so we're gonna have lots of boom and bust cycles can I think the most important thing is to stay focused on diversification opportunity not getting wedded to any one thing that looks like it worked in the past it may not work in the future uh, and so we're spe- we're spending a lot of time on that i mean one of the things that really manifested itself through COVID was uh, the problem of home country bias, which creeps into almost everybody's portfolios. Uh, And you have to be very aware and conscious of of diversifying out of it. So not only home country bias in terms of the stocks and the bonds you buy, uh, but also the currency. And I think it's now a really important time that people think about how to get all of that, uh, the opportunities that they may have missed in other parts of the world, uh, especially parts of the world that are, you know, reopening and making it very interesting.
2: Morgan Stanley's James Gorman agreed that there is room for optimism, not least because of China. Well, I've, you know, I've seen I've seen a lot of cycles in my
4: career, and um, I've seen some really, really dark periods. You know, the financial crisis after September 11, uh, even though you know the early recessions in the U.S. in '93, '94, the, the market bust in '87. You know, I go back. I'm a lot older than you. I go back a long way, and um, you know, I think what we've been through. If you stack up the negative stuff that happened. First land war in Europe in 70 years, first global pandemic in a century, and hi, uh, highest rate increase because of inflation in 40 years. That's a lot to throw at people. And where are we now? It's not bad The debate is, will it be a recession, will it be short and shallow? Nobody's saying we're going to depression, right? Everybody's saying we can kind of deal with this. And two things, I think, have changed in the last month, which has caused this echo chamber we live in here in Davos, where everybody's basically repeating back to each other what they've heard from the last person, let's be honest. (laughs) I'm not, hopefully, but uh, most people are, Um, is uh, two things have changed. Number one, the inflation numbers are definitely, there's clear evidence inflation has, in fact, peaked and is coming down. Right. How quickly whether the Fed will get us to 2% and when remains the debate. But is clearly the, the slope of the line is positive, is um, to everybody's favor. And the second is not just the opening up of China, but China has embraced the rest of the world more aggressively in the last few weeks, witnessed by the Vice Premier meeting with Treasury Secretary Yellen um, in a way that we haven't seen for some time. So the big question coming out of the party Congress and President Xi um, uh, being uh, re-elected by the Congress was where does China go from here?
2: Bank of America Chief Brian Moynihan agreed with others about the likelihood of recession, but at the same time it not being too severe, based on the strength of the consumer and also the strong labor market.
9: In the U.S., um, our, our research team, which is the best in the business, has a mild recession predicted, sort of mid this year into next year. They push that out, and so why they keep pushing it out? It's the strength of the U.S. consumer. They have the Fed getting over, you know, five, five uh, percent, five and a quarter. Just this week, they moved that to three, twenty-five basis point rate rises, opposed to fifty. Meaning, again, the Fed can slow down a little bit because you're seeing inflation go over. Um, and so that's what we have. And so this year ends up being positive, next year ends up being positive, but you have a little trough in the middle. Employment's still strong. People People are working, they're getting paid more, but they've got to get to inflation, so they have to keep the rate structure up here for a fair amount of time until they get the services side inflation down. And in, in the market may be misreading how fast that will take. But on the other hand, we're a heck of a lot better shaped than all these other economies that I talked to out here.
2: Yeah, well, that's for sure. So pushed out the possible recession, your
9: research team did. Yeah.
2: Is it also looking shallower because the economy is more resilient than we thought it was?
9: Well, it, the, the consumer is very resilient. And un, you look, new claims from unemployment were down in 190,000. Before the 2007-8 recession, Great Recession, financial crisis, they ran 330,000 each posting. So think about that difference. In the workforce, about 20% bigger. These are down to numbers consistent where they were in you know, 50 years ago when the workforce was half as big. So the, the employment's still strong. Now, are we all being more careful about hiring? Are we Are all trimming our head count by attrition? Are we all flatting out? And in some industries are actually taking head count down. So that may change, but it hasn't changed yet. The money in their accounts is still there. From, and it's come down a little bit. They're starting to spend it. But on the other hand, it's multiples of where it was pre-pandemic. They have lots of borrowing capacity. Now, what's going quickly stopping? Obviously, you know, mortgages got expensive and house purchases stopped, but the, the dollar value of housing that went shot up after the recovery, yes, it's come down, but still way above where it was in 19. And so people have to think about this in the perspective of long-term growth rates that, that fell and then shot up with, with all the stimulus and now are settling in, and the Fed has to bring inflation down because inflation will eat away at purchasing power, and that's really not good for especially median income households.
2: Coming up, we move from the economy to another big topic for Global Wall Street, geopolitics. That's next on this special edition of Bloomberg Wall Street Week from the World Economic
0: Forum. Today's show is sponsored by Public.com. That's where you can earn 5.1% APY with a high-yield cash account. While we can't say for certain it's the highest interest rate there is, we can say this, it's a higher rate than Robinhood.
2: This is a special edition of Wall Street Week from the World Economic Forum in Switzerland. I'm David Weston. Leaders gathered here this week against the backdrop of the largest ground war in Europe since World War II. Sanctions imposed on Russia for its invasion of Ukraine prevented any Russians from actually attending. And China was represented by its vice premier, Liu He, not its president as in years past. But China nevertheless was very much a topic of conversation at the World Economic Forum as Liu He actually left Davos to go over to Zurich to meet with Janet the U.S. Treasury Secretary, raising the prospect of maybe better relations between the United States and China. We asked U.S. Trade Representative Catherine Tai about her take on what was accomplished by that meeting.
10: With respect to trade, I think that um, expectations for everyone, um, workers, families, businesses in America, um, in China, around the world, um, should be that President Biden uh, is committed to bringing a thoughtful, deliberate, strategic, and ultimately effective approach to the challenges that we have, as well as the opportunities that we have in this uh, profoundly consequential trade relationship.
2: WTO director Ngozi Onkojo owala is encouraged by possible thawing between the United States and China.
5: There's uh, quite a bit of uh, optimism that is being attached to the opening up of China. And I think the meeting of Yellen and Lu is a good sign, but I think we should also uh, keep it in check. Mary Callahan
2: Erdos of J.P. Morgan says she's seeing some hopeful signs out of China already
5: having come back from Hong Kong uh, just a few weeks ago, you can just see the pent-up demand of of what's there, people wanting to go in-country, people wanting to come out of country to travel around the world. I think the opening up of of China, while while it will have its ups and downs, uh, it will hopefully be a net exporter of deflation, uh, which would be good for the world, getting all of those kinks out of the system uh, and really bringing back growth in a a positive way. So I'm looking forward to that. I I just say for us at J.P. Morgan, um, Getting to see our people who are on the ground in China and have been working so hard throughout these many years of um, us not being able to travel in we're really excited about that we're looking forward um, to lots of good reunions um, and the like but people are really excited and I think it means a, a lot of things the tone that you're hearing from many that are that are either going in already uh, and or are just listening to some of the conversations here today are really positive about what could be happening. And of course, there's all sorts of negotiations that have to happen to make sure that people do things in the right way, that people work forward to cooperation uh, on a fair and even uh, playing field and I think that those are the important conversations that had to be that have to be had uh, but now that we can do them in person it's going to be a hell of a lot more fruitful uh, to be able to do it that way than to try and do these things on some kind of a flat screen where you're not you're not able to have those personal connections that are so important when you're going through, through these negotiations.
2: For years, environmental, social, and governance investing was all the rage, but it's become something of a political hot potato recently, with 18 states now either enacting or proposing legislation to bar state governments from dealing with any financial institutions that take ESG into account in their investing. We asked Jane Fraser, CEO of Citi, whether her bank has lost any money because of ESG, and she had a very simple direct answer.
6: No, um, but but I think that's not really where we're focused. So when we look at it, the world's got a number of major transitions that we're going through, and to your point, these aren't these aren't easy ones. So where we're focused on is helping. Let's take climate. We're trying to make sure that there is both the realization of energy security um, for the world, which is critically important for economic growth, at the same time is that there is the investment and the innovation required in sustainable um, green sources of energy and cleaner sources of energy. And we've got to solve both of them together. They're not mutually exclusive. Um, So our focus is trying to move the noise out the way and actually roll up our sleeves and get on with the hard work of how do we um, help support our clients who are investing in the innovations, get them to scale, that will get those cleaner technologies that we need up and running at the same time as supporting clients who are also critical sources of energy um, for the world right now and helping them with that transition, but recognizing this takes time.
2: BlackRock CEO Larry Fink went even further to say that at least in Europe... If you do not have a lens towards uh, decarbonization, you're not going to win one... One euro
7: of business. You know, we we are one of the largest hydrocarbon, if not the largest hydrocarbon co- co- uh, investor in the world, uh, because we're the largest indexer, and we we work with all these different companies. At the same time, we're one of the fastest-growing companies related to decarbonization. And let's be clear: the IRA in the United States is a game changer too.
2: Whether banks are losing money or making money from ESG, the one thing everybody can agree on, we need to know what it is, and by the way, how to measure it. Something that Brian Moynihan, the head of Bank of America, has been working on in his capacity as chair of the International Business Council for the World Economic Forum.
9: We started uh, many years ago thinking about how the private sector had to make the changes to, to drive the, the economies and then you know, with, with all going on in the public sector, with all going on in debt levels and all that stuff. And so we sat there and said, okay, what do you need to do that? And what you need to do that was define a set of standards that we believe are the right standards and then we got to stop from having a proliferation of standards. So there's, you know, at one point there was going to be 600, uh, in 2020 we was scheduled to be, I think in North America, like 600. Uh, seminars on metrics, Yes, you and we've we got to stop this. So we've come up with straightforward metrics that match the SDGs and these other things that people talk about. But they're straightforward metrics that say, you know, are we good for our, our customers? Yes. Are we good for our, our teammates? Yes. Are we good for our shareholders? Yes. And are we good for society? Yes. You know, that that's how we drive the company. And, and so we're saying, if you disclose those metrics, then people can see what you're doing.
2: It is not just investors and financial firms that are concerned with climate and what can be done about it. Tech is also moving into the area. As we talked to Gary Cohn, he's now vice chair of IBM. So environment's really important and, and as a technology company we
8: think about how we can help our clients and we look at the we look at climate no different than any other sort of business operation. First of all it's a data problem. It's a big data problem so you have to collect the data and you have to get it into a usable format. That's something that IBM really thrives on is we help people collect data, we help getting it into a usable format. Once you have the, the data you need the technology, you need the software, you need the analytic tools to start evaluating the data. So you've not got to baseline you're evaluating your data you know how much carbon you're admitting now once you know how much carbon you're admitting you can go through policies and procedures to change the way you're running your business how you're running your business and you can measure success so you operationalize it and you become much more efficient at running your business once you have the
2: technology and once you have the data in a, in a way that's useful to you as a company As Global Wall Street talked about climate in Davos, one of the main topics of conversation were those electric vehicle tax credits in the Inflation Reduction Act, which the United States says is a big step toward clean energy. But Europe is very concerned that it's actually protectionist because of the favorable treatment it gives for U.S. manufactured batteries. Democratic Senator Joe Manchin of West Virginia came to Davos to talk about energy and why he thinks the U.S. approach makes really good sense. They've been coming to me for years saying, you've got to have a carbon tax.
11: You've got to have a carbon fee. And I said, we don't have any any other choices except to use fossil right now because we don't have the horsepower to run our economy and our country. But you want to penalize people thinking it'll make them do it quicker. I never used I never thought that that would work. I thought incentives work better. And guess what? The Europeans have used the carbon tax and carbon fees forever. We come along all of a sudden and do something and we says, we're going to incentivize you. We're going to help be your partner and take some of the risk out. But you're going to have to invest. We're not sending you a check. You've got to have either production tax credits or investment investment. Tell me which way you're going. We're going to work with you. You're going to have a 10-year runway. But that 10-year runway with the IRA, and I know the administration has been touting this as an environmental bill, environmental bill. This is truly an energy security bill, and we need everything. But we need a horsepower from fossil for 10 years. Wind, I mean, not wind, but as far as, the, and coal, gas, and oil, but do it cleaner than anywhere. Yeah. That's climate, that's helping the climate.
2: Coming up, we turn to what we learned at Davos about inclusive growth, and what global Wall Street can do for developing countries. Falling behind.
0: Today's show is sponsored by Public.com. That's where you can earn 5.1% APY with a high yield cash account. While we can't say for certain it's the highest interest rate there is, we can say this it's a higher rate than Robinhood, a higher rate than SoFi, a higher rate than Marcus, a higher rate than Wealthfront, a higher rate than Betterment, frankly, a higher rate than Capital One, a higher rate than Ally.
2: This is a special edition of Wall Street Week from the World Economic Forum. I'm David Weston. Global Wall Street wasn't just focused on the developed world when it came to Davos. The developing world also got a fair amount of attention, starting with Sub-Saharan Africa, which cities Jane Fraser says is very much on her client's mind.
6: A lot of the discussions we're having, particularly interestingly with a lot of our Middle Eastern clients, is what are they doing about Africa? I, and I think Africa is one that we've all got to keep our mind on because that is where the net growth in the workforce is going to come over the next few decades. Um, if we get it right, it's a wonderful opportunity. If we don't, it's going to cause a lot of problems both in Africa as well as in Europe as well as other parts of the world. And so looking at how do we build out transmission networks, greener supply chains there.
2: And the Biden administration echoes what City is hearing from its clients as the United States Trade Representative Catherine Tide laid out plans to support and engage Africa and described the great opportunities for the world economy there.
10: President Biden hosted the African leaders um, at a summit in December in Washington DC. And um, I think it came at just the right time. Uh, The message um, that we wanted to send across the board, across the administration, was that uh, America is ready to partner with Africa, to work for Africa, with Africa. On trade, we've got our uh, baseline trade program. It's a preference program. It's called the African Growth and Opportunity Act. Uh, it is um, set to be um, uh, uh, reauthorized uh, in 2025. Now is exactly the right time to be reviewing uh, what performance has been like, how effective has this been in um, stimulating and fostering development, uh, economic development and investment uh, in our uh, partner economies, and then also to start thinking, how do we make this better and more effective? It is very clear from all of the engagements that we had last December in Washington DC, including um, my trip to Nairobi for President Ruto's inauguration in September, um, the future really is Africa. The resources in Africa, whether they are in the ground or that they are the human beings, the people of Africa, the potential is tremendous if we can find the way through trade, economics, investment, finance, to unlock the potential of Africa and its people, Africa could be the engine that drives economic growth and prosperity for the next phase of globalization, but it is going to require us to think big and to be creative because the tools that we have so far um, haven't done what we know we need to do in this next phase.
2: President Biden also just recently traveled to Mexico City for a North American uh, yes. a summit meeting with the head of Canada and Mexico as well as President Biden. There are trade issues pending under the U.S and other places, particularly involving energy. Mm -hmm. Where do those stand? Are they being resolved? What's the timetable?
10: So um, there is an energy uh, consultation that we are engaged in right now. Uh, Both the United States and Canada have requested consultations with with Mexico. Those consultations are ongoing. Um, We uh, um, uh, have certainly gotten Mexico's attention. (laughs) They know we care deeply about this our economies are and have been inextricably linked for many decades now, and we are the kind of partners. We are neighbors. Geography is never going to change. We're going to be neighbors forever. So um, these are really important conversations. They are about energy policy. They are about um, uh, our vision for a competitive North American future. Uh, We are uh, still in consultations, um, and uh, we are committed uh, to finding a solution here using whatever tools are available, including the ones under the USMCA.
2: The pandemic drove home some of the great disparities between the developing and the developed world. Pfizer chairman and CEO Albert Bourla explained how the mRNA vaccine that his company developed with BioNTech was made
3: available for free and how that has led to a much broader initiative. The vaccines, particular vaccine, uh, those all countries in the world were offered completely free through a brave uh, move that uh, the government made, the US government, they bought one billion doses from us at cost and they offered it for free to the world. Unfortunately, they were not able to absorb it because there is no demand for those vaccines, in unfortunately, in the poorest of the countries. But nevertheless, that gave us uh, uh, the whole story with, with COVID sensitizing even, even more. So nine months ago, here in Davos, we launched an accord where we said that Pfizer will offer all the patent protecting products, which means the products that the, uh, manuf- generic manufacturers cannot make uh, cheap copies at cost. And we say, of course, is manufacture and send. No regulatory, no compliance, no legal, no administrative, no research. We announced not all our patent protected, but all our products. This moves the list from 23 products to over 500. Wow, so it's not just the ones patent-protected, uh, patent it's everything all of your else. products across because the- we were hearing when we were hearing, we for example, we would give them maybe the most prescribed breast cancer medicine in the world, high technology, but they would say we have also needs for antibiotics, we have needs for antiparasitics, we have needs for anesthetics or basic chemotherapy, and uh, we have them and then we do everything. I must say, that sounds wonderful, absolutely wonderful. It why, is wonderful. Why did you do it? Because we ought to do it. I don't think it is, there is no reason why the poorest countries in the world right now won't have access to the same medicines that uh, kids in America or in France are having. One of the reasons I think Pfizer has been as successful as it has been is because there's
2: been investment in science, basically. What about larger, for the U.S. government and
3: other governments, are we investing enough in basic R&D? Could that help you? I think it would help. And I think there is a lot of work happening, particularly in the US. And this is why in the US has attracted all the research investments of the private sector. If you see what is going on, even uh, companies that are European companies are doing most of their uh, research in the US because this is where things are happening. I think uh, it is the crown jewel of the US industry, the life sciences. You know healthcare so terribly well, Dr. Borley. Let me ask you what you think the biggest
2: challenge is. Is it actually having the the drugs, the pharmaceuticals to administer, or is it actually the infrastructure to get it delivered? You mentioned earlier that you actually couldn't get some of the COVID vaccines
3: in some countries that needed it. No, there is no doubt. In Africa, it is not the availability of the products. Of course, you need to have them and you need to have them in prices that you can pay. But once you resolve that, which we just did, Uh, you're going to have very big problems with infrastructure. You don't have the right uh, healthcare professionals to administer, to make the diagnosis. Uh, This is where we should help. This is where we should help, us included. One of the ways
2: those in the developing world are addressing the needs that they have is by migrating, something that has created a crisis in the United States along the southern border. But Bank of America CEO Brian Moynihan says that the biggest challenge ahead for the U.S. economy is not keeping people out, but getting more workers into the country.
9: I think we're getting a lesson right now in the fact that America is this wonderful place for people to work and live and, and prosper. And you know, but the problem is we need more people. We just need more capacity. And the point I always say when people say this that, everything, and everything, it says Well, it takes eighteen year, year eighteen years to get an eighteen-year-old. That is science, and nobody can refute. Okay. So if we're going to have enough workers to do all this, all this nearshoring, all this onshoring, to put up the wind, you know, the windmills all over you know, Texas and Oklahoma, places that are being built to put up the solar fields, to build the pipelines, we have got to get some people in this country. And, and so, we have to figure out a way to do it that works.
2: Surprisingly, given the tight job market, particularly in the United States, the challenge of making sure workers at the bottom are making a living wage is not going away. Neela Richardson, she's chief economist at ADP, came to Switzerland to address this very issue.
12: There's a big gap between market wages, minimum wages that are instituted by governments, and what it takes to actually survive in this world in terms of housing, basic necessities, food, clothing, shelter. And in the context of high inflation, even as it moderates, it doesn't mean that those prices are going down. They've already gone up. They're just gonna grow more slowly. So for the typical worker, their wages haven't kept up with inflation. And even before the pandemic, their wages weren't keeping up for the lower end of, that, of the paid workers with just basic necessities. So this is a global issue, and it deserves the world's attention.
2: Okay, so let's assume the world actually pays attention. I hope it does. Yeah. What does it do about it?
12: Well, there's actually benefits to paying people fairly, believe it or not. If When companies, and there have been companies that have been very prominent on this issue. Adecco was on our panel, the CEO, Unilever made comments in, uh, on uh, living wages when on his panel on the cost of living crisis and what they've identified is there's actually benefits to paying people fairly it leads to more engagement it leads to more retention and it leads to something that the world should really want right now social stability when workers are secure
2: coming up we hear from special contributor Larry Summers of Harvard on the big issues facing global Wall Street and why he may just maybe a little bit more optimistic than he's been This is Wall Street Week on Bloomberg. This is a special Davos edition of Wall Street Week. I'm David West, and Larry Summers, our regular contributor here on Wall Street Week, came with us to Davos to talk about some of the big issues on the agenda. And we started with him about that debt ceiling crisis back in the United States that is getting so much attention right here at the World Economic Forum.
7: This is potential tragedy as far as uh, it would be catastrophic and inconceivable for the United States uh, to default. It's not what anybody serious does. We have problems in our family or discussions about how my kids spend money. Maybe my kids will pay off visa, maybe I will pay off visa, but the idea that the family should stiff visa because we can't agree is absurd. Similarly, uh, the debt limit. I've been through a lot of these. I think at the end of the day, we will meet our obligations and not cause substantial uh, disruption, but God, I wish we could move past this uh, like Senator McConnell showed real leadership uh, in doing uh, some time ago because it would be catastrophic for the United States and for our sense as a serious
2: country if we were to actually default. Another big story here in Davos, but more globally actually, is now Liu he, the Vice Premier, Premier of China, meeting with jenny ellen just over in zurich not far from here in part because who was here as i understand it in davos to at least start a discussion what do you make of that i think it's encouraging i had a chance to
7: speak with him uh here uh in uh, davos look i think it's always better to be talking Whether you're agreeing, whether you're disagreeing, you get to better places with mutual understanding. And so I welcomed uh, that. I think the right approach is small victories. We're not going to have a broad rapprochement or a transformation of the relationship. But if we have small victories, we identify areas of uh, progress, we have specific accomplishments. I'd like to see that with respect to the debt uh, problems and debt resolution of some of the poorest countries in the world. I'd like to see that with respect to climate finance, Uh, in uh, the developing world. Uh, I think we can make progress if we set our expectations and aspirations right towards uh, small
2: victories. You're a macroeconomist. You're not a politician as far as I know. At the same time, you know politics in Washington. Can we make even those small steps of progress on either side with Liu maintaining the support from President Xi and Janet Yellen maintaining support in the United States? Because there's a lot, as you know, of political sentiment against China.
7: I think if we're making concessions to China, probably not. If we're working with China to work out an African debt problem or to support an energy transition, then I think we can. I think we need to get out of the zero-sum uh, mindset, and by focusing on the issues in third countries, I think we've got a much better chance of doing that. I think it'll be much harder on the
2: direct commercial issues between our two countries. You've been warning about the possibility of recession for some time, even saying it's more likely than not. At the same time, things have been getting a little better on some of the eco numbers. Where are you right now? I'm still cautious, David,
7: but with a little bit more hope than I had before. Soft landings are the triumph of hope over experience, but sometimes hope does triumph over uh, experience. And we have seen some slowing of inflation indicators. At the same time, we've seen continued strength. And that's got to be what we all... Uh, want uh, to see. I still think it's going to be hard because we need a substantial amount of disinflation that goes beyond volatile components uh, receding. But uh, you have to recognize that uh, the figures are better than somebody like me would have expected uh, three months ago. So it's still a very, very difficult job uh,
2: for the Fed. But the situation does look a bit better. That was special Wall Street Week contributor Larry Summers of Harvard. That concludes this special edition of Wall Street Week. I'm David Weston, this is Bloomberg. See you next week.
1: Your industry is unique. It faces its own challenges and risks that set it apart. That means choosing just any insurance company just won't cut it. At The Hartford, we take pride in knowing the ins and outs of your industry and help provide solutions that suit how you do business, from liability and property insurance to workers' comp and more. At The Hartford, we don't just talk about specialization, we live it. Learn how The Hartford can help your business at thehartford.com.
12: What could you do if your data was working for you and not against you?